Hey, before we jump into the podcast, I'd just like to quickly correct ourselves. Um, we mentioned how there were originally two songs meant to be on Wish You Were Here, and that was Dogs and Pigs. Uh, we were correct with one, and that was uh, Dogs, but the other one was actually Sheep, instead of it being Pigs. I went back to the, let's do a bootleg at the 74 tour, and they played Sheep. So, there you go. Whenever you hear Pigs, think Sheep. Other than that, I'll send you to me, Harrison Faw, and Solomon Simmons for the podcast. Now spinning, wish you were here. Hello, welcome to Now Spinning. Uh, Today we're doing uh, Wish You Were Here of Pink Floyd. Uh, their ninth studio album, and ultimately the downturn of Pink Floyd, really. It's the the beginning of the end. Uh, so, first of all, let's just start off with our brief overview of the album, like, personally. Uh, start with Harrison. Uh, What's, uh, uh, just your, your overall... I, I personally think it's the best Pink Floyd album. I, I constantly bounce between whether it's Dark Side of the Moon or Wish You Were, the, you were Here. But No love for the wall. I'd fuck. You will get to that. In a I I don't like the wall. I'm gonna be honest. As much like I I just can't get into it. I'm a, I'm a bigger David Gilmore. I'll fan. save my choice words for you as this is a PG podcast, but that's fine. Ah, uh, we can swear. We can swear. Uh, yeah, Saul. What's your opinion? What's your uh, brief brief overview of uh, Wish You Were Here? I really like it. It's not a bad album. I think it's really good. I really like the. I guess you could say shortness of it, and I think it's there's not really a bad moment on it. Um, but the Wall's my favorite uh, uh, Pink Floyd album. So wow, really? Yeah, I don't think that's a, that's not a very unpopular opinion. I, I, it's, it's not. It like the Wall used to be my like second favorite album of all time. But like <laughs> when I was I, an idiot, when I was fifteen, <laughs> when I was fifteen. But like honestly. Like if you really if you think like listen to all of Pink Floyd's albums like Dark Side of the Moon onwards they're very cynical like in the lyrics and like just the music it's all in like the minor keys yeah but with like if like honestly when like you saw those the cartoon kind of animations they made for the songs right or at least like you saw the yeah like clips of them like adding that with the actual lyrics it's like. Jesus Christ, this is super dark and cynical and depressing, but also like the music itself, like I think back on it very fondly. Like, com- if you take the wall, it's like a very cynical, depressing, and uh, there's no human emotion to it. Like it just feels really like just bleak and depressing for an hour and a half, and that is all you get. But for like the for Wish You Were Here, though it is like on the same levels of uh, cynicism and just depression. It has like a human touch to it with the the feel of the music and all the the nice synthesizers and the especially like the final homage that they have to Sid Barrett at the end. It like gives it a human touch at the end. Yeah. Uh, unlike uh, the wall, where it's just like it's already depressing when we start off in the flesh, and then the, just the song li- as the tracks go down, it just gets darker, darker, I just, I darker. I think that's darker, what makes it good. Dar- that's fine. I don't mean to depress I, you. I, yeah, feel I, like, <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like with Wish You Were Here, the kind of sadness and like personal feeling that the songs have sort of apply to anyone. Whereas I feel like with the Wall, it was it was more sort of personal to Roger Waters himself. Yeah, 
that's yeah pretty much exactly yeah because like the themes of wish you were here uh, because originally like they just wanted the the other three just wanted to just make an album they were kind of lazy at this point because like uh like roger waters stated they could have broken up after dark side because they had that tumultuous 1974 tour where they played wish you uh, shine on you crazy diamond for the first time but it just the the, the the tour was horrible they had no they, they couldn't connect to the crowd at all and that's one of the main reasons why uh the wall was written because of that and but it was just a tumultuous so they thought okay we'll come back to the to the studio and we'll just make a banger <laughs> and it just ended up they're just really lazy the only ambitious person was really waters at that point like he he sought to make it a thematic thing by bookending Shine On Part 1 and 2 onto both ends of the album and having a, a thematic three extra songs within him. While David Gilmore said, well, let's just do like we did with metal, where we have, like, you know, the first side is a few songs, and then we'll just have, like, the giant epic at, on the uh, on side two. And it just, if, for Waters, it didn't really work. It just felt kind of just, like, just thrown on and whatnot. The, the the two songs were supposed to be uh, uh, pigs and dogs. dogs. Yeah, pigs and dogs. I can't remember the original names, but that's what was supposed to be on it. But it just wasn't working. But yeah, so I guess we'll jump into the backstory as we already are doing that. So yeah, they in early 1974 they went to a studio in King's Cross in London to jam, and that's the thing. Like Pink Floyd, though they're like their music is very progressive especially for the time with like how long the songs were like echoes was 24 minutes long and that came out in 71 like no one ever was doing that at the time in mainstream even though they weren't technically mainstream at like during metal but yeah what is, what uh, is the, so, the beatles longest song is what hey jude is it like nine minutes it yeah that'd be hey jude or uh i want you she's so heavy which is under eight minutes both so like yeah um, uh, like I didn't even think like King Crimson came out before that, but I think their longest song was like twelve minutes. But so, anyways, they're just a jam band, but they're able because they have Richard Wright being classically trained, and just because they're such amazing musicians, they're able to like take these blues jam riffs and turn them into something completely different, adding like these spacey influences and all these just classical influence just everything and making it their own like i don't think anybody's able to do what pink floyd has done just with their own style and stuff taking blues and like jam band stuff and turning them into these thematic pieces of art really like i i feel like you could take wish you were here in dark side of the moon and like compare them to like a pablo picasso painting or a stanley kubrick movie yeah yeah they definitely feel more I guess more artsy than other stuff at the time. Like it, it's not like most of their albums aren't stuff you just chuck on and you just throw in a playlist or just play casually. Like you sort of have to sit down and enjoy the whole thing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, so they they started doing their jams in '74, and David Gilmore did that. Did those three no, uh, four notes on the guitar, which was completely accidental. But that sparked a thought process in Roger Waters' mind about their former frontman, Sid Barrett, 
who was the original front man. And I think he, he was like the actual founding member of Pink Floyd. Yeah. Uh, he made Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And he was a very smart, bright, handsome guy. And he really had the world at his feet. But with the pressures of the re- recording industry having to come out with singles after singles and Pink Floyd themselves pressuring Sid and the band to kind of move into the more pop of the top of the pops kind of uh, area instead of doing the you know like the weird uh, weird music that they kind of they wanted to do um, and so that, that was that all took a toll and he tried he took LSD and because you know they thought it will unlock the truth and all that and he ended up taking way too much in a short amount of time and there, there must have been like underlying like schizophrenia with Sid because that can happen where like acid can bring out yeah. like those kind of uh, like mental not disabilities but I don't know the pl- right political term yeah and that was it and they, they checked up on they found him like three days later and he was just gone like it just he had this blind look in his eye and they pretty much had to kick him out of the band not too long after. Yeah, I, I remember there was a, there's like a story I heard where. They the band was like doing some I guess jam session and Sid Barrett came in and he was like I've got this new song to show you guys, and then he started playing and he kept saying like Have you got it yet? And he like kept singing that, and then when the rest of the band sort of finally figured out like the tune of the song and how to play along and started playing along, he would just switch up the song. And every time they'd get the hang of it, he'd switch up the song and just keep saying, have you got it yet? That's so weird. Yeah. And that, that relates to like the, the lyric with random precision. I forget the, you know, you know which one I'm talking I about. I do, but I can't remember it right now either. I'm, I'm sure searching up the lyrics. Well, you wore out your welcome with random precision. Uh, yeah. That kind of like kind of sums up exactly what Sid Barrett was going through where like he had this vision in his head but he kept changing and changing and just he kept coming into the studio multiple different times it was just kind of a shit show um so yeah they eventually they booted him brought in david gilmore and they made a few albums afterwards but they're still like an underground band kind of they had like a really strong following but they weren't mainstream it wasn't until they made dark side of the moon which then like the rest is history they got they came to they, they got shot to stardom and it was never the same from there on like you made dark side of the moon arguably the greatest album of all time like that brings a lot of pressure not only does it bring pressure but money fame everything and everything that they wanted but then they kind of realized that like you know though you have we have all this money admiration and you know critically acclaimed music where do we go on from here do we want to just stop what we're doing like we we reached the top this is what we've this is what we wanted to do the whole time or do we continue and s- strive to make uh more music yeah. I, f- I feel like that's gonna be hard if, if like you just keep making music to reach i guess what they got with dark side of the moon but they made eight albums before they got to that point and i feel like if you spent so long reaching for that point you finally get to it and it's like well i guess this is it like it could really take a toll on you. Yeah, and like, uh, it's kind of similar to the Stones in a way. Like, Solomon, you and I were talking about how, like, after Her Satanic's Majesty, before Beggars, 
the Stones could have broken up. Like, that could have been the end of just a hit-making band. Because they'd been going on for about, like, what, almost eight years by that point? Yeah. And they'd made quite a few albums. So that, like, again, that could have been it for them. Same with Pink Floyd. Like, they made, they hit their peak. Great, we could just stop. We could just relax, enjoy our lives as it is. But, like they said, it's just, it's not as groundbreaking as you think it is. I think that the fragility of being in a band versus being a solo act of that popularity has almost more to do with it than your music actually amounting to something. Because if you look at solo acts like Elton John, like, peaked at a certain point for sure, or sure, yeah, and then just kept making music for 15 more years, right? Like, and, and regardless of popularity, like, there's some some pretty deep tracks and some stuff of his that nobody knows right but i think that the volatility of being in a band is kind of like let's drag this out until we have a hit album and then well why the hell would we do this anymore especially when like how often they would argue with each other like yeah and, and so like that's the thing it's you see all these like the history of all these bands they kind of have the same ending where you know you had the beatles they're building up from Hamburg all the way to Rubber Soul and Revolver, and then I there was like rumors of them breaking up by that point, but they just stopped touring, and then they made Pepper, and after Pepper that could have been it for them, because again, you made Sgt. Pepper and John was just kind of done with it, kind of like the rest of Pink Floyd minus Waters and Waters was like Paul, where he kept pushing them on and saying like trying to just reinvent things and you know it's yeah it's it's really weird trying to keep all four people on the same track because eventually that's just not going to happen you you're going to want to venture out into your own kind of things and make up your own life instead of being with the same four people your whole yeah and it was pretty clear near the end by the like looking at things like the final cut versus like momentary lapse of reason or whatnot that they're like they were sort of going in different directions but like, they're both made under Pink Floyd names, but it's basically, like, a Roger Waters album versus a David Gilmour album. Yeah, pretty much. So, like, The Wall is, like, or, excuse me, arguably, like, the same thing, because Richard Wright had been kicked out by that point because of his coke use, and Nick Mason just was kind of Nick Mason at that point. He just... He just hangs with the back. Yeah, he just doesn't, doesn't do much in, in general. So, it's, yeah... It, it, it's tough being in a band if for more reasons than one but so yeah they go into the, the the studio they try to just create something but they're so emotionally and just physically burnt out from going on a horrendous tour making the greatest album of all time they just jumped into the studio way too quickly and they it really hindered them they couldn't do much for like the first two weeks they're just taking just getting drunk at the mixing board doing nothing because they had no other ideas. Or they're playing squash. There's you know, photos of Nick Mason and David Gilmore playing squash when Waters was in the studio and it was just kinda of bad. Lots of tension. Or they had the they had the dartboard and an air rifle. <laughs> <laughs> I try to I try to find that story out. I don't know what I feel that like was. that's like the dumbest thing you can do because if you throw a dart at a dartboard and you miss, it just falls on the ground. But if you miss a dartboard with an air rifle, it pings around the room. <laughs> True. Yeah. So they hired uh, Brian Humphreys as the en- engineer. They worked with them on the soundtrack, and I think it was what their like third album called More. And because the the engineer they had for this for the tour was just inexperienced and the sound was shit, so they hired him. Brought him in. They went to Abbey Road, 
And honestly, Brian Humphreys, like, this is an amazingly produced album. It's so good. It's kind of like with movie editing, where, like, if editing is amazing, you will not notice it. But then when you go back and back and back, you will notice it more and more and more by just how how amazing it is. And we'll get into it when we get into the track list. But, um, yeah, so they're super frustrated, and eventually Rogers had the thematic idea of having this album be about absence. And I think they nailed it on perfectly with the lyrics, the feel of the music that they that they made, as well as the album cover. Like, it's just perfect. If you look at the album cover, it's just this white square with the portrait of these two people, these two businessmen in a Hollywood studio, which is like the most empty, absent place in the world, shaking hands, which is, again, like a, an absent, just like a, a pointless emotionless thing that we do like interaction thing while this dude's on fire kind of like getting burnt as like symbolizes the music industry you know there there'd be the saying oh i got burnt by the record companies and all that and there's also those photos of like the the invisible businessman holding the invisible pink floyd record and the dude uh standing on his legs sorry sta- uh, standing on his head through the the lake all alone i just think everything about this album thematically fits so well and it's just it, yeah it, it, it can easily be compared to a uh, dark side of the moon for I sure i felt like the next like, the cover art i felt more most strongly matches like have a cigar more than any other song on the album just because of the whole like music industry like getting burned sort of these i guess shaking hands with these label execs and all that less so than the feeling you get by listening to wish you're here or shine on harrison's harrison's right like i agree with harrison for sure i think that to me like the kind of emptiness of the gesture of the handshake versus the emptiness of somebody saying wish you were here and you could go much deeper down that road but again yeah kind of just the lack of personality and and caring with you know hollywood fat cats or whatever um is is where the title and the titular song applies to that but i think that have a cigar heavily influenced the actual um actual record label yeah i i i I agree too for sure i i think the one that uh can kind of like work well with the remaining songs aside from welcome to the machine uh would be the the lake shot of the dude with his feet standing out i yeah I think that is like I think that's the best photo out of all those photos. I don't know if there's like different kind of variations of photos depending on like which region you are you're in when uh when it came out, but yeah, I I think yeah, that's like everything about the album cover is just gorgeous. The Storm Thorgerson was the designer of it. I don't have the name of the photographer, but he was like a close he worked closely with Storm Thorgerson. And there was that funny story in the documentary where it was like they were talking about the lake where the the photo you talked about with like the leg coming out of the lake that they would just joke about that he would find the most like far out exotic locations to take photos just so he could yeah. take a vacation there <laughs> i don't blame him man that looks that's such a gorgeous just such a gorgeous photo yeah and then also like i guess with the with the stuntmen that get set on fire for the photo they were saying right that like because he had it was his entire back was like lit on fire 
but like wind came and blew it into his face and he like he like quickly jumped out of the way but they i guess they luckily got the photos in time yeah it's nuts like all that was practically done right because he didn't have like computers at the time so that dude like underwater would have to like what was it he had like a a breathing apparatus yeah something like that and he had like a he had to balance himself on a chair that was underwater and hold their breath because otherwise the bubbles would come up and ruin the photo yeah yeah it's like man the shit they had to do to get those photos i mean it works 100 percent. so i mean i i wouldn't have any complaints if i was any anybody involved with that so but moving on to the track list uh we started off with part one to five but just call it part one of uh shine on um this is just such a way to open up a record just a like a opening two minutes of just this atmospheric like layers of synthesizers and keyboards just making you feel like you're in this like unearthly limbo kind of thing I and then like it takes two minutes for the the guitar to come in it's just like a gradual build up to this beautiful song about Sid Barrett and uh, we'll get to it in a bit but critics like were were really mixed about this album and I I wonder if this was like one of the reasons why because you just have this thing you've never heard before it's just this two minute four minute intro of just synths moody synths and like sparse guitar kind of moving everywhere and um i, th- I think it's a very ballsy way to open up a, uh, an album if you ask me i thought that initially critics like just torched the album and then retroactively it's all amazing of course yeah, yeah. <laughs> i guess that happens with really a lot of like progressive albums but yeah i was just gonna say i i think like because people would i guess at the time every song was like three or four minutes so You'd probably think like just get rid of that entire part, just squish it down to the main track. But like, there's really no need to. Like, I I feel like they, what the song is like 13, 11 or thirteen minutes. Yeah. And they perfectly use that entire time. Like, there's not any moment that it's like, oh come on, get to the, get get to the point. Yeah, it's it's so. There's yeah, there's so many different parts, and that's I guess that's why they split it up into five parts for the song, for the first half, let alone where it's yeah there's so many different ver like just different musical bits that still tie into each other perfectly well um and i love being a huge guitar freak i love david gilmore's tone in this uh and like he wanted a big sound for the guitars and in order to do that so they recorded abbey road studios and there's three uh recording studios in it and in studio one that's like the classical studio where most classical music uh, 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 pieces of music were, were recorded because it's big, very cavernous sounding. So they brought in like two 100 watt amplifiers and basically recorded that while they're in studio two or three, one of the two studios, just so they can have it completely cranked and not like let it bleed into any of the other tracks that they were doing in the studio i was gonna say i think that entire that idea sort of is part of the reason why the track's so like impactful and like every time i listen to it i get goosebumps because like rather than just being in some like tiny studio with no echoes or anything they just blast these guitars in this massive area and it feels more akin to like being at like a concert where they're playing it rather than 
them just in some little little studio yeah yeah i, t- I totally agree and um to kind of get that spacey vibe so that, yeah you get that that giant reverb just from how big and loud that is and just being in a completely open giant studio but they also used i mean all over the 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 record they used the benson echo rec 2 the phase 90 which is a, like a phaser for a guitar uh power boost the fuzz face like they used everything david gilmore just knows how to like be subtle with his effects but also be like really bold with them and just he knows exactly when to use effects and when to not i thought it's just brilliant and to like touch on the production of this song specifically whenever so you know it's it's very dynamic when they jump into the verse it's you know you get the huge climaxing of the the keyboards and the guitar and then it goes back down to remember when you were young Sean like the sun and then all of a sudden the even like Nick Mason the drums themselves kind of sound flat like most 70s British records um, but the way that they're produced they just push up the sound and they add like an extra two layers of guitars on top of it putting in the the choir singing or the the two two women i forget their names singing in the back from the the blackberries yeah and the just it, it just brings up this huge sound of music and then it comes back down again then back up and it's just very dynamic i i love how how they used multiple tracks at different points of time in this song specifically it's just gorgeous yeah i guess as one thing i i never really paid too much attention to in this song was i would say the drums for most of it except for the part where like you've got the four notes and then you hear the do 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 and then like everything sort of just explodes but other than that i feel like the drums are sort of like like they they do their purpose they just don't really stand out which i i guess isn't bad when the guitar is like the main standing standing out point of the song yeah and that's also what you're gonna get with nick mason as your drummer like i don't mean to shit on nick mason too much but i mean that's like the one bad not bad thing about pink floyd but the thing that could have shot them into like i still think they're on the same level as uh, like music musically wise and album wise as like zeppelin and the beatles but like musicianship wise i think that takes them down a notch just because nick mason isn't that great of a drummer i don't think especially like he really struggled to do most of the drum parts on this album not it had to do in part with the divorce he was going through but he just wasn't able to i don't know he just wasn't able to do the drum parts it really kind of confuses me but uh he had his mind in other places yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) but yeah and again the production you don't kind of notice that there's like three different guitar tracks at once at specific points until you kind of like really hear it and you're like holy shit there's two guitars on either side of my ears and it's just blowing my mind so yeah anything else you guys like to touch up upon before we head to welcome to the machine was this the song they were recording when sid barrett walked in or was that they were mixing it so it was done they're just adding the final mixes to it and that's when yeah this like giant just like kind of fat bald eyebrow shaven guy walked into the studio and nobody recognized him at first and then uh i think it was david gilmore he's he was like hey that's that's sid barrett 
and they all kind of just broke down and cried. And they tried to talk to him, but like, the, you know, they would be able to have small talk, but then sometimes he'd venture off into some like random conversation in the middle of the conversation they're having. It was. And there's like just the, the photo that someone took of him. Yeah. Like, when he was there, and it's just such a sad photo when you like contrast it with like this young, fashionable, skinny guy that he used to be. It's sad, and that's like. Aside from that, none of them ever saw him again. Like, I think Roger saw him, like, at a candy shop two years later. But other than that, he pre- pretty much just isolated himself with his, like, aunt or something or his sister. And, yeah, that was that was it. It's really, like, it's a really sad story. And the, the lyrics that Roger Waters writes about the whole thing, it's it really it just r- wraps it up perfectly, you know, like... Remember when you were young, young, you shone like the sun. Now there's a look in your eyes with like black holes in the sky. You're caught in the crossfire of childhood and stardom. You reach for the secret too soon. You cried for the moon. And like, yeah, it's, it encapsulates everything that Sid Barrett was and was afterwards. And it's just, yeah, it's very, very emotional, especially with that. Like, that's so, so weird that like, during that album, like the, and that specific song for Sid Barrett, he walks in. Oh, and he was ready to make music too. He said like he was, like, okay, what are we making? You know. But yeah, it's just so such a weird thing to happen. Yeah, it's it's one of the I guess one of the biggest like what ifs within the music industry. Like, cause like whether they would have kept going the way of like Piper at the Gates of Dawn or Source of Full of Secrets or if like the man would have never had their whole like well what do we do from here moment and broken off yeah i i think they would have been they would have been still spacey and stuff i think they would have been even more avant-garde than they became even if you i don't think you can call floyd avant-garde but they're definitely doing avant-garde stuff during piper at the gates like uh fuck why am i forgetting the song overdrive astro no Oh, Astronomy to Mine. Astronomy to Mine. That's a great song. But yeah, it's like, they, it was very, I don't know, I can't really get, wrap my head around Piper at the Gates of Dawn just because it's so wacky and weird, even on Floyd level, you know, weirdness. It's definitely up there, but it would have been interesting where they went for sure. Uh, But let's move to Welcome to the Machine. (laughs) Arguably, maybe their darkest song of all time. Uh, Just with like the, synthesizer mechanical dystopian sounds that they start off with uh and especially if you add in the the animation that was made for this song like oh my god it is was the animator was the animator that did wish you were here the same one that did the wall yeah i think so it's like the he was like american political yeah like cartoonist yeah he did like the mickey mouse smoking a joint thing which is pretty funny this is the darkest song I've ever heard from Pink Floyd, like, especially with how they made David Gilmore's voice, like, making him kind of nearly shouting, and then having a double track of him just, like, monotone really low, just really adds to the creepiness and just the anxiety in this song. Uh, what's your take on it? I think it's, like, I think it's, in my opinion, I think it's the lowest point in the album. Like, I'm to me it ties very much together with have a cigar and like theme 
but it's more i guess it's more general like as roger ward had said like it's not it's not exactly about the music industry it's just about i guess the machine that is life but i i think like i think it's good but i just think it, it hasn't aged terribly well just because of the whole like the synthesizer that bounces from ear to ear so that kind of just feels like a more of a tacky futuristic sound effect than than anything that sounds like instrumentally pleasing but that might have been what they're going for yeah there's no drums in this track which i actually think it has aged well in terms of where music is now where like you don't you, there's no drums it's just like mechanical let me just press a button and there you go you got a beat but uh yeah everything is pretty much non-human or like it's just all of its electrical synth synthetic stuff aside from david gilmore's voice and the brief acoustic he plays here and there but solomon what's your take on this song I think it's interesting that you kind of make those observations about the lack of percussion and it being non-human and whatnot, because I think you see a lot of influences in uh, kind of 80s discotheque in this song um, in terms of very early electronic music production, in terms of the mainstream, um, which I think is fantastic, and I think you see a lot more of today. But again, for like 75, that was crazy that's... You know, I think they were doing a lot of like with the like that kind of throbbing sound yeah. on the quarter notes. Like that's yeah, that's nuts for seventy five for sure. Um, but I like it a lot. Have you guys seen the music video for this song? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's with the, I think that's also crazy for the time period. Yeah, like, that shit's nuts. With the, the river of blood coming in and the hands trying to reach for like the monolith and shit. Like I feel yeah. I feel like that part like it's it really fits the song the whole like the hands reaching up for like these like solid metal towers basically yeah right. I yeah and with the uh, the opening like I don't even know what we can call it just the machinery kind of noise that Waters is able to just he's like a mad scientist you give Roger Waters a synthesizer and he'll make fucking anything well wasn't it was it a synthesizer that he used? I thought it was like some machine that he he liked that he used. It's like I think it's the same thing he used to make on the run, where it is a synthesizer. He's like, yeah, it's the, technically a synth. Yeah, you got like the keyboard, and then you kind of have these this like control panel in front of you, and I, I've never really seen like an up close shot of it or like how it actually works, but like. It's the same shit that the Beatles used to make the white noise in uh, She's So Heavy, I think. Whereas, yeah, you just, like, keep making all these, flicking these knobs and making different noises with them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how... That's what an actual exactly. analog synth is. Like, yeah. when you think about keyboards and whatnot with synths, it's just an input to actually modulate the synth. The, the actual synthesizer is going to be comprised of knobs and dials and switches um, and just different ways to modulate the input of a sound um that's yeah i feel like i could go in a bit deeper but you guys probably don't know like the names and actual compositions of most synths no, but don't. it is a synthesizer i know moog that's that's about i was all. gonna say moog yeah yeah um is, cl- is a clavinet technically a synthesizer or is that just a keyboard it tech like it's partially a synthesizer yeah yeah that's the most I know about synthesizers. I wish I I want to I want I'm getting a synthesizer when I get the money for sure because that shit is would be so cool to mess around with. It's just addicting. Like it's yeah. just like you look at people and this is a weird conversation to be having in 
when we're talking about Wish You Were Here, but like <laughs> if you look at Dead Mouse's production, he literally has his entire studio all uh, three walls because one is sound deadening are composed of just synthesizers from top to bottom because nowadays he does all of his music on analog synths oh really and, yeah absolutely oh, cool. yeah let me put a picture in the discord it's a lot like tame impala where like they they're reverting or he's kevin parker's like reverting back to the old ways of making music because it's just i don't want to say i don't want to sound pretentious by saying it's just better but it's it's better it just sounds warmer, sounds more human, um, which like even this, like it's mainly non-human, but it still sounds human. There's like in the the, the wobbing is still kind of like a slightly offbeat from everything else sometimes. Um, yeah, it's a more like natural way of making things than some yeah. formulaic. Yeah, uh, I think the piercing, the, the piercing like synths they get for the soloing is just... I get goosebumps whenever I hear it. Uh, just how how evil and menacing they feel, which is how how piercing they are, and just how high pitch it is. And oh, I, I love it. I love it so much. Um, and and then at the end, when you get the like the driving in the car thing, again done by a synthesizer, and he pulls up to the party. And in the video, it's like so the monolith is going back up to the. Like, like in the enclosing cir- circle of like metal sphere of metal that oh, yeah, like yeah. kept doing the opening and closing thing for the opening part I think that's brilliant how it's like it might be this dude thinking of all these evil like horrible cynical thoughts then he just kind of clicks them all puts them in his head drives off to some high horse party and forgets about it all and, I don't know I th- or becomes another cog in the machine I just think it's it's brilliant so moving on to have a cigar or side two starts off with have a cigar Uh, (laughs) next to welcome to the machine this is arguably the most cynical song on this album lyrically i think musically this is one of the most upbeat songs even though it's still in the key uh like the minor key it's got such such a funky rhythm and david gilmore using his phaser to kind of like give it that more of a funky vibe because funk used like in funk the the phaser was used a lot and strats too and david gilmore uses only a strat basically and uh, i think it's great what do you what do you guys what's your take on it yeah i think i definitely see how it's more like upbeat but it's more upbeat and like a like it, it appears upbeat but it's not actually upbeat like the whole like that's what we call like riding the gravy train and he makes it sound like it's i guess with what they do within the music industry is make it sound amazing and then you get there and you're like oh this is actually i'm being screwed over and yeah it's pretty much and like roger has like a real real big issue with uh roy harper roy harper is the one who actually sang the the lyrics because he like Floyd were having was having the same issues of dealing with fame and trying to cope with continuing to make music. So he would always he would constantly be in their studio while they're making the record. And David and Roger just couldn't get the lyrics right or the 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 vocals right. So Roy just said, Let me have a go and he put all of his heart into it. And it is like Dave, I agree with David Gilmore. It's the perfect version of the song. Yeah. I know Roger wanted to be like more innocent feeling, but like the lyrics and the way he sings, where it's almost like a parody, it just works so perfectly. 
Yeah, like I, I definitely think that the Roy Harper version is better than what Roger Waters would have pulled off. Because I know Roger Waters, like, oh, if you gave me like twenty more minutes, I would have gotten it. And then I've, like, I've heard the demos of him performing it, and like him in the documentary doing its version of it. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't have the same feel. Like, it, it, sh- no. it almost, like, it should be as cynical as Roy Harper makes it sound. And like, it's a record exact. He should sort of sound like a parody of what they are. Yeah, well, and if you, like, read the lyrics, come in here, dear boy, have a cigar, you're gonna go far. Yeah, and, like, the the whole which one's pink, like... Yeah, and it's, like, yeah, like, I've always had deep respect, and I mean that most sincerely. And, like, the way he says that line is just, it, it can sound like he actually means it sincerely, or he's just, like, trying to, you know, just trying to warm him up, you know? Yeah, like, it's basically just a caricature of, like, Selma said, like, the fat cats in the industry. Yeah, it's. I think it's oh, such a great song, and I like how they. I mean, it must be double tracked his voice because it's so, like, when you double track a, a vocal, it just makes it stronger, and it. I think that also like adds to the fact that this guy is supposed to be, you know, a record exec, and all that, and it's just, just oh, I love it, and the the guitar playing is great, even Nick Mason though he's still kind of boring he still is able to lay down a pretty groovy beat um so yeah like Solomon, what do you what's your what's your thoughts on this song i think you guys touched on a lot of good points i actually really like the transition out of the song mm-hmm. yeah yeah we're like kind of gets sucks you out it's like you're changing a radio station yeah 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 it's it's so weird and like to me to me it's kind of like the with all the effects that are put on the guitar, like the wishy effects and the the synths and the the really groovy slow kind of beat, it really makes and and that just the way that Roy Harper kind of like moves his vocals, especially when he says, you know, we're riding the gravy train, he trails that part on and goes up and down. It really makes you feel like you're on this really wacky, weird acid trip, and then all of a sudden you just get sucked up into like it's in a radio. And it just kind of just sucks you out of this really weird trip you're on back into reality and now it's through a radio. And it's, I think it's so good. Pink Floyd is like, they've always done really good transitions like between songs. Like it doesn't, I guess on, on vinyl is when you really feel it because you, you almost can't tell when the song begins and when it ends. Mm-hmm. Whereas like, I guess if you throw a song in a playlist nowadays or you can actually see like where exactly it ends, it sort of takes away that illusion of one seamless, like basically one seamless like side of the album. Yeah. And that's like the thing that Pink Floyd is so good at is that like they make their, their records. It's not just a record, but it's, it's, it's a piece of art, like just how the songs flow in it's through each experience. other, how they connect thematically and it's just so good again that's why you can like compare them and their art and their work to like again like scott fitzgerald or like ernest hemingway because i think pink floyd is like if you compare them to like a filmmaker they're stanley kubrick right where it's like everything needs to be perfect like and it's so grand and extravagant and you can have a grasp of what it means but you're not exactly sure what it means sometimes it's uh, it's yeah, they're they're so good. Yeah, I, I definitely think the do. Stanley Kubrick comparison is is like probably the best comparison you can make for them. Yeah, um, 
yeah, I think the soul is great in this by uh, by David Gilmour. Like David Gilmour is great throughout. I mean, all of Pink Floyd, really. But um, yeah, and I just love the lyrics. Like, you know, um, we're just knocked out. We heard about the sellout. You're gonna go, get an album out, yo, to the people. We're so happy we can hardly count. Like everybody else is just green. Have you seen the charts? Like it's just, ugh. And again, with the mixture of Roy Harper's vocals it just oh it's perfect it's a perfect song um and then it transitions to the so you do the radio changey thing to wish you were here or to the like the bbc play or whatever which and then eventually goes into to wish you were here which is a nice change from like all the cynicism and just like anger and depression that's like that's been building up to this point and though wish you were here is still technically it's like it's a, it's still a melancholy song with like how it's structured it's still again in the in a minor key but it's a, like kind of the first human touch to this to like any song in this album uh, since like shine on really so it's a really it's a nice change of heart from going from this really intense dark two songs to an acoustic like a country not a country I guess country. Yeah, folk like a, country. Like Yeah, folk, it w- which is like very far away from what Pink Floyd usually does. Yeah, it's more sort of like Crosby, Stills, and Nash type thing. Yeah. And, yeah, having the acoustics and having the 12-string too. And uh, David Gilmer with this D, Martin D35, which is like, ugh, God's acoustic guitar. Um, it's so it's such a beautiful song. Um, yeah, what's your take on a Solomon? I think that uh, it's interesting we were kind of talking about at the beginning of this, the, you know, discontent between band members and just how rocky of a road it was. Um, And then you can see, you know, just a lot of the emotions in this song as kind of an unofficial direct tribute uh, to Sid Barrett. You know, like that's, you can definitely feel a sense of camaraderie and, and longing in the rest of the band members towards him. Um, and just sitting here, it's an interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. R- Roger like stated it's it's not about Sid at all, but it can be. Like you, you can see how it is, but it's a very more universal song. You know, it's 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 about being absent. It's not. It's about like you know being being in a cage. Just kind of. I think anybody can relate to this song. Yeah, like it's definitely a song for for everyone it's at least some point in their life like it's gonna apply to you at some point i think like yeah i i i think it's an absolutely amazing song i think like lyrically i think it's it's one of their strongest as well like even though it's it's what it's like one verse like it's uh it's like a chorus and a verse and a chorus basically yeah pretty much but the way that he writes the lyrics where it's like almost all the lines are just questions right like so you think you can tell heaven from hell blue sky from pain can you tell a green field from a cold steel rain etc etc it's very um yeah it's a very different way of of writing a song is like having having it question you you know like and it kind of makes you look back on your life and how how you see the world how you see yourself it's yeah it's a very a very human song and a very non-human world and album yeah and i I think i really liked at least like how it begins like it's got this sort of quiet muffled 
like like guess acoustic guitar playing sort of it's more of like a background noise than like a, a riff or anything and then you have this like more i guess louder powerful acoustic guitar come and like overlap mm-hmm. it and basically take over the song yeah i like i also like that what like is it a cough or a sneeze that you hear from it's, like at 40 hacking a logie yeah and that's actually a fun fact about that that was richard wright coughing and when he heard that later on it inspired him to quit smoking <laughs> oh really that is fun that's interesting I, actually what was it sorry so? i said that is actually really interesting yeah yeah because yeah that is like a pretty pretty nasty loogie hacks up there <laughs> real smoker's but, cough yeah <laughs> but uh definitely didn't make him quit cocaine though no. um <laughs> i guess one thing with the song is because like it's it's david gilmore singing right and like yeah and the uh on i guess on the documentary that we watched like the story of wish you were here roger wardis does his version of it and like i'm so glad that david gilmore is the one singing it because like the roger wardis version isn't bad but it's so much it's so it feels so different to the actual version like it feels more like a leonard cohen song than a than a pink floyd song yeah and i think gilmore just has a better voice in general compared to waters like waters is a very distinct voice and it works really well especially for like most of the songs in the wall but he doesn't he just has a really like gritty hard voice whereas gilmore's is very more pleasant very smooth and it's just it, it fits well with the the themes and the feel of the song in general better and i love how again like this is again the the, the production of it where like when the drums come in it just everything bursts into the into the song you get get the piano coming in and the drums are really loud and really full in this song even though nick mason's playing is still kind of lame it's still really good and i love i love that huge burst of emotion that comes in when uh when he when he says do you think you can tell i i love it uh also it has arguably my favorite lyric in all of pink floyd um, you know, we're, we're just two lost souls swimming in a fishbowl year after year, running over the same old ground. What have you, have we found the same old fears? Like, oh my God. Cause anybody can relate to that where you just, you're just re- repeating yourself over and over again, repeating your same issues, your problems and not doing anything to fix it. And, but you don't realize that until like years later and you just, and then you just realize it and you're like, fuck. It, it, and then you just feel like shit. It's just so good. Oh, I, I, I again, I can never get tired of listening to this album. Um, and then you get that, the, the the windy transition into the the groovy, like I don't know, atmosphere kind of beginning of part two of Shine On. <laughs> just when you critics thought it was over. <laughs> yeah. Another long song. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Uh, dude, the Strat sound in this part, like, with the, the, like the high high keyboard that Richard Wright uses in the, and the the bass. This is like the first instance I kind of like hear the the bass in this album. Like, I know R- R- Roger Waters was like behind this whole, the whole album really. Like this is his baby, but as a bassist, I. I don't notice him whatsoever up until this part of uh, the album 
what's your take on it yeah i, th- I think it's definitely it's a good like supplement to the to the first um like i guess the first part of shine on you crazy diamond and I, to me at least it feels like it like some albums you'll have like a song and you'll have before or after it like the interlude to that song and it'll sort of just be like an instrumental version with more like a solo or something and this song yeah. sort of feels like that like but like this one's like i don't know i find this one's like shine on is 18 minutes yet there's so many different musical parts of it like you have the reprise where they do like i think the one verse and the one chorus where they do shine on you crazy diamond but like this part and the slide guitar solo that comes in right after that like and then nick mason kind of uh like kind of just double time because you get that funky kind of like slow swampy groove and then once the slide guitar picks up then he kind of kicks it into a whole other gear and then david gilmore keeps rising higher and higher and higher up the slide guitar which just keeps amplifying the intensity of it and then you crash back down into the reprise um and then the, okay, I didn't even know this part of the song was actually a part of the song because I'd never listened to the whole Wish You Were Here album up until like five years ago. But I'd always heard the 18 minute long edited version of Shine On from like the greatest hits. And they finish that, they finish the song after like, you know, the, the, the reprise. They completely cut out like the last five, four minutes where like Richard Wright just takes the helm and makes makes it his own with like the again another groovy like really groovy part i think it's more groovy than like any color you like or you just get him kind of just riffing on the uh on the synths and the keyboards and then it slowly fades out and fades into the to the sid barrett uh homage and i think that's the best part of the album hands down like there's so much emotion and different emotions that transition uh, throughout that last four minutes of uh, part two, like what, what do you what do you think about that part? Yeah, I think it's crazy they cut that out because yeah. it's just such a like yeah from like nine minutes to the end, it's totally different. Like it's not more of the same at all. Yeah, it's it, yeah. it's gorgeous. And then the like the the Tony he chose for the that part where it's like a flute, it's like a soft fluty kind of sound instead of going for that really piercing high mid kind of sound that they had for welcome to the machine and uh, have a cigar it's just a very mellow melancholy sound and it fits perfectly it's gorgeous and it is it, it reminds me a lot of uh quadrophenia and love rain on me uh by the who same kind of synth sound and same uh just feel to the music that they had for excuse me for uh, yeah, that that those two songs. Yeah, it's gorgeous. I think this is actually no. We'll get to that in a bit. But Harrison, anything you'd like to comment on for uh, the last part of Shine On? Or like I, I honestly like like I'd, I'd recognize the song if you played it, but it's not too memorable to me just because I haven't listened to it that much. Like Wish You Here is not an album I listen. I shuffle. So if if I start listening to it and I don't have time to finish it, then I just don't get to that song. So it's, it's <laughs> definitely my least listened to song on the album. Oh, really? It's so good. I love it so much. But um, 
Yeah, so we'll, we'll jump to the critical reception. Uh, well, at least like the when it first came out. Uh, I'm not gonna like look back at someone's review from like 2005 because fuck that. Uh, but Ben Edmonds wrote in the Rolling Stone uh, that the band's lackadaisical demeanor leaves the subject of Barrett unrealized. They give such a matter-of-fact reading of the goddamn thing that they might as well be singing about Roger Waters' brother-in-law getting a parking ticket. What a moron. Yeah, I think that's a load of horseshit. Like, <laughs> like that's... I, I don't know how, like, how they could put more, like, emotion into Shine on You Crazy Diamond. Like, I know. It, like, that's the thing that pisses me off about, like, about any critic, but especially music critics, because movies is kind of more objective whether or not a movie's good or bad. Like, you could just, you can visually see whether or not a movie's going to be, like, is good or bad. Uh, obviously, there's more aspects to it, too, but it's a lot easier to decide whether or not a movie's good or bad. But with music, it's very subjective, and I get that. But, like, all these guys, especially at Rolling Stone, they're like, they think they're the high horse and all that shit, especially today where, like, most people our generation never knew about how much they hated Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, or at least wish you were here. Like, it's, like, come on. I know you're trying to get people's attention by saying that, you know, they may as well be writing about this dude's parking ticket, but, like, fuck off. Seriously? And these guys have probably listened to it five or so times, and they're going to rate that. I don't know. I think that's really stupid. And it shows that music critics don't know what they're talking about. At least some. Because, uh, yeah, Melody Maker wrote, From which direction one approaches, wish you were here. It still sounds unconvincing in its ponderous sincerity and displays a critical lack of imagination in all departments. What the like, fuck? <laughs> what? This is like their most ambitious record to this point, I think. Like, I know you got, there's Dark Side, and that's like an exception, but really having a 24-minute song bookend the album and for them to like, and for it to be compl- like just literally happy, it's like having eight different songs in one song, uh, and they're all emotionally driven in so many ways to have it lack lacking imagination in all departments like every song is creative in its own different way yeah like i don't know (laughs) well i mean if you look at it that way then music critics are all out of a job because then they just be all like that's the greatest fucking song ever i really like this song (laughs) that's every song summed up i'm not agreeing with what they said at all but yeah yeah you got to play the devil's advocate i guess too see where they're coming from but yeah i don't know there's actually you know this guy because he i wrote or i read his review on band on the run at robert crisco of the village voice and he wrote the music is not only simple and attractive with the synthesizers used mostly for texture and the guitar breaks for comment but it actually achieves some of the symphonic dignity and cross-referencing that dark side of the moon simulated so ponderously i think that sums it up perfectly it's it's blues it's very heavily blues influenced but it's been able to cover it's it's covered up by like all the musical transitions and changes and how progressive the idea of the album as a whole is i yeah i I guess but i wouldn't i guess i wouldn't call it simple like i feel like no i think that's like the extreme for sure yeah like the tracks have so much depth in them yeah but if you kind of like look at look at it uh, 
musically, like if you're just trying to play it on guitar, it's actually not as hard as you think it is. Like to play sh like the open, like shine on, like the solos and stuff. It's literally just a G minor pentatonic scale, and that's all that it is. Is it the way that David Gilmour does it? Is that he knows exactly what note to play at the exact right time and what emotion to put into those bends and those notes. So like that's what that's how Gilmore is David Gilmore. That's what that's what makes it him. I see what you're but, saying. Yeah, if you're like cause I I can play I can play the Shine On solo. Not to the extent <laughs> that he plays it. Put down but, the guitar, Leo. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I can play it. It's it's not as hard as you think it is, but to play it like they do, you have to be really good. Um, as both Richard Wright's and David Gilmore's favorite of theirs. So that's all you need to know. Um, questions. Would you skip any song if it came up in a playlist? And I know Pink Floyd songs are an exception because like they all kind of mesh with each other, like with the transition. So like, is there any song that you just skip in general? If you were just listening to the record, would you skip anything? I think to it's easy to skip either part of shine on just because it's fucking six hours long you know <laughs> you know what i'm saying right like any of the other yeah. songs not really but they're all like like five minutes max right whereas i feel like i have to be in a certain mood to to really listen to and appreciate a 13 minute track you know yeah yeah um but i, I wouldn't say i'd skip a song in general because it's a throwaway of the album yeah, yeah it's too I, small of an as far as like for that, playlists really. go i have wish you were here in a number of playlists like it fits well i don't have any other like shine on you crazy diamond part one through five i have in like some but like as far as skipping songs on the album like i guess if i if i really wanted to i might skip over like welcome to the machine and have a cigar just because i might be going for shine on you crazy diamond and wish you're here that makes sense yeah I see the only song I'd skip just because, like, I don't want to be wanting... I don't want to shoot myself after listening to a song or something. I'd, I'd say, like, <laughs> Welcome to the Machine would be the only song I'd skip just because, like, depending on the mood I'm in. Like, if I'm in a happy mood, I'm not going to be like, Oh, Welcome to the Machine's up next. Fuck yeah. You know, I'm going to be like, eh. No, I'm going to skip that. But I wouldn't skip anything. I think it's they're all great songs. Uh, best aspects of the music? I think everything. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, I like it. Like it all ties together very well. Like they, they very well theme. match the atmosphere that that they're aiming for. Yeah, I I think Richard Wright is like as much as I love Gilmore, I think he takes the the reign for this. I in every way like this. This is Richard Wright at his best. Keyboard's good on the song. Yeah. He's he's all over this album, especially with Shine On. Uh, best aspects of the mixing slash producing. I think kind of as I touched on, I think the use of the synthesizers in especially especially the middle of the album are were my favorite part by far. I I think how well everything's layered on like Shine on You Crazy Diamond like very much like that is there's also, so many like things going on in that song, but nothing feels overwhelming or out of place. Still sounds right. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, the, that's what I was going to say like the dynamic range and just how like how easily they were able to layer the music onto each other but without you recognizing it like sometimes if you're listening to like kind of the earlier records of whoever you can kind of hear oh that's where they they made you know they put an extra track on or something i it's it's so covered 
so well within the music that you don't realize like the the changes in production that they added in certain parts of the song. I think it's great. Brian Humphreys, like, wow, such a I, or yeah, I think it was Brian Humphreys that would do the mixing. I th- or might have been the whole band. Might have been all all five of them. But yeah, best slash worst performance. Best, in my opinion, was Gilmore playing the guitar on Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Okay. I would say right on the keyboard and Shine On. Yeah, that's that's me. I think this is, like, in general, I think this is, like, Richard Wright's apex. I know he, he had, like, Great Geek in the Sky and Any Color You Like in Dark Side, but this, I mean, all you have to say is Shine On, right? Like, that is such an amazing album, uh, song, and he's all over that. He's all over this record. I think this is him at his peak. And he, he t- definitely takes a downturn after this album, too. So, yeah. I think the worst performance, uh, I'd say Nick Mason, just because, you know, it's Nick Mason. But I don't notice R- uh, Roger Waters' bass playing at all in this album, except the the first part of part two of Shine On. Yeah, I think Roger, Roger Waters was mostly, like, a lot of what he, what he was doing was, like, the creative mind behind the album. Yeah, yeah. So, in in that sense, maybe Roger gets the best performance award for just kind of creating the whole album itself. Um, but yeah, I'd say like his bass playing is probably the worst, just because I don't notice it. Uh, what's age the best? Which track? Just the the album. What what's age the best? I think everything's aged the best for this album. Yeah. And then the I guess like that ties into the question, what's age the worst? I don't think anything's age the worst. I think this like this still holds up today. I think that's yeah, a hard question to ask with progressive music in the seventies. What's age the worst? Yeah. I think the the only thing like I said earlier is Welcome to the Machine. You guys liked it, but personally I thought the like the synth bouncing from ear to ear, like the alien sound effect, I just thought didn't age super well. But that's maybe just not. Me, really. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Maybe not. It sort of just sounds like, because, I don't know, I guess using stuff like like any like music or beat making tool is always like some tacky alien sound effect, and it sort of just reminds me of that. That's because of this. <laughs> Look where we are now. You know, I can, I can understand with like the really, like the, the synth soul they have for Welcome Machine. I can see that, yeah. Um, I know there's only five songs on this album, or technically... Was it technically four? Yeah, but, it was uh, technically four. I was gonna say your top three songs, but I guess uh, just maybe your top one or top two songs. I think "Shine on You, Crazy Diamond" and "Wish You're Here." They're like I think two of the greatest songs ever made. I'd probably agree. Yeah, parts uh, probably parts six to nine if we're splitting it up, and, yeah. and "Wish You Were Here." I'd say. Yep, the la- part two of Shine On for sure is my top one. Like I, I could listen to that song. If if I had to choose one song to live to listen to for the rest of my life, it'd be that maybe. Really? Like maybe like, I like all time <laughs> any like any song, not even on this album or Pink Floyd, any song. I feel like you'd want some song that fits every mood. I feel like, like that's just such a bold statement to make. Like that's it is a, it's, it's a bold pick, pumped up subtle, because it's it's happy but it has a dark song theme. of all time, you know. <laughs> uh, and then I'd say have a cigar is my second favorite. That's a, that'd be my third pick. I think that's a close third. Yeah, same. Uh, best album of 1975. 
I'll give you a list run through of the albums that were released then. Born to Run, Bruce Springsteen. Oh, that's the- Pink Floyd's out. <laughs> uh, that's the way the world earth wind and fire uh, blood on the tracks dylan uh night at the opera queen physical graffiti zeppelin wish you were here captain fantastic elton john fleetwood mac but uh young americans david bowie uh yeah wish you were here i guess i was gonna say it's a weird year for albums for sure i think it takes the cake yeah yeah it's kind of weird like most of the like the who and those kind of big bands of the late 60s early 70s kind of took a toll like they had the who by numbers which is meh. but yeah yeah i think there's no question that I mean, physical graffiti i guess would be like a, a second say so, yeah I, I say that second but yeah sure is this pink floyd's apex if not where does this rank amongst their records yeah with me it bounces between this and dark side of the moon is their their best album right now i'd say yeah it's the best album mm yeah so what do you think i think when you think about apex yes this would be it regardless of what i think personally of of their albums and and whatnot this would be the apex of the band yeah i don't it it, it, like with harrison like i i think dark side of the moon is just the greatest album of all time so it's really hard to say that this is better than dark side of the moon but i say i honestly i'd put in the same category is dark side of the moon i'd say it's just i don't think that this is this might not be their best album but i think that this point is where the band reached their peak in terms of musicality if that makes sense yeah yeah no i think so i yeah it's just really tough to choose between because like technically you can maybe say that they hit their peak at dark side because they were building up to that moment and they kind of like crashed down a little bit and didn't really know where to go for this album okay um but musically, I, I think back on this album more fondly than I do of Dark Side, even though I do think Dark Side is better than Wish You Were Here. So I don't know. It's really tough between those two albums. But I'd say that their apex was Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I, With this being a close second. I guess something I want to touch on that I didn't bring up at the start, but like the whole them deciding not to put dogs and pigs onto the album was i feel like that's such a risky move that like someone like some (laughs) to take like some of their best songs in my opinion and just like put them on the sideline considering they could have just broken up at any point like that these tracks that may not have may not have like ever came out because they might have broken up before they got to record them together yeah um i remember like excuse me they were they weren't really finished like they weren't really themed to be around like a animal farm it they didn't really like have a identity yet those two songs which i which is why i think rogers just said like roger said just push them off to the side we'll just write new songs about this the theme that we're trying to talk about but yeah honestly i have pretty ballsy move but i think the main reason why they wanted to do those songs for that album was kind of out of laziness just because Gilmore was like, we already got these two songs, let's just work on them instead of just writing completely new material for this album. Yeah. But hey, it, it worked out in the end. Like, Think about if they did put them on these other two like 10-minute songs. Like, this album would have just felt <laughs> super long. Yeah, which is like, I, I yeah, I wonder if this, if could you imagine what critics would have said at the time if they came out with fucking dogs, pigs, and shine on in one album? 
And you'd be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. But anyways, well, that wraps it up for this podcast. Um, guys, it's been great. Solomon Harrison. Yep. Thank you for coming on. Thanks uh, for having me. Of yeah, course. I appreciate it. So, yeah, you guys have a good uh, rest of your day. And uh, have a good one. Goodbye. Take care.